Hi, everyone. I know recently we announced we were going to two episodes a week and then three episodes a week. But you know what? There are just too many episodes. So we are going to back to five episodes a week. Still a reduction from seven, but there were just too many interviews scheduled, and I didn't want to make all the authors wait for too long. So I hope you can keep up with me. Listen to one a week as you're on your way to work or on your way home or putting your kids to bed or whatever it is you're doing. Moms don't have time to read books now five times a week. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. If you like this podcast, you will love my new anthology called Moms Don't Have Time to Have Kids. Check it out, and you'll hear from 49 authors about all sorts of things moms don't have time to do. All the authors have been on this podcast. Also, check out my TikTok, at with Zibby and Tracy, my other podcast, Sex Talk with Zibby and Tracy. Check out Moms Don't Have Time to Write on Medium. And of course, my new publishing company called Zibby Books. And now back to our daily author interview site and a quick hello from some of my kids. Hi. Hi. Hello. Enjoy the show. If you like this podcast, you will love my new anthology called Moms Don't Have Time to Have Kids. Here's a little snippet by one of the authors from the anthology. My name is Richie Jackson, and I'm thrilled to have contributed to Moms Don't Have Time to Have Kids. My essay is called Peloton and On and On. And what I really don't have time for is losing weight. Carolyn Farrell is the author of Dear Miss Metropolitan. She's the author of the short story collection, Don't Erase Me, as well, which was awarded the Art Seidebaum Award of the Los Angeles Times Book Prize, the John C. Zacharias Award, given by Plowshares, and the Quality Paperback Book Prize for First Fiction. She's also received grants from the Fulbright Association, German Academic Exchange, DAAD, City University of New York Magnet Program, and National Endowment for the Arts. Feral stories have been anthologized in Best American Short Stories, and the best American short stories of the century, among other places. She teaches writing at Sarah Lawrence College and lives in New York with her husband and children. Welcome, Carolyn. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books to discuss Dear Miss Metropolitan, a novel. 
Thank you very much for having me. My pleasure. Would you mind please telling listeners what your book is about? Well, in a nutshell, I would say my book is, the plot is based on three girls who are kidnapped, held hostage, and eventually make their way to freedom. That's the basic plot, but the book is spread out. It's got tentacles everywhere. And it's it's also about how, not only how they deal with this tragedy, but how their community deals with the tragedy, their various communities. So that I was looking at their own experience, but also the larger experience of the people around them. I thought it was really interesting, by the way, that you started with like an intern at a magazine or an intern at the local paper writing the story of what happened, because you said, just like you said, like the the larger community can't believe that this happened sort of in their backyard and that nobody knew. And what what does happen to a community when something so traumatic happens right, right there? Right. Well, you know, it's interesting. I think that Sadly, we're seeing it played out right now with the Gabby Petito case. Yes. That, you know, all over the country, communities are awakened and are, you know, protesting and thinking about how, you know, women's lives, what their worth is. But I would say the other thing that's come out of the Gabby Petito case is that now more people are thinking about brown and black girls who disappear and who do not get the national attention, you know. So while it's a tragedy all around, I mean, it's quite horrible what happened and what's probably the outcome of that case. This was an opportunity to kind of look at all of the neglected Native American women who have been disappearing, women in Mexico, you know, and just, you know, in our in our own backyard, brown and black women who just disappear and upon whom no media attention is shown. So true. And it's so interesting the way you call the you call the the woman the mother and then how you explain the backstory because I feel like it's so easy to make judgments about why somebody turns out the way they do and you and to assume the worst at first, but you have this nice passage. You said, can I just read this one paragraph? That's sure, okay. You said, you said, to soothe my brother, I started to tell the story about why the mother really acted the way she did. Oh, I hate the story, Bud said. Once upon a time, the mother was delivered into the world on wings. She had an okay father. She had, however, a mother who was no more than a fuzzy Polaroid. The world wasn't paying attention when it doled out these two parents. Well, time went on. I'm going to be different than these two, the mother told herself. And then she turned around again, and here was the world once more, giving her two funny-looking kids. Come on, world, what games are you playing with me? And then it says, she talks about the mother and how I wish it could be another ending, but then it wouldn't be us, but observed. Right. right. Tell me about that and adding that layer of sort of context. Yeah, I, I, I felt that it was really important to add context to all of the characters, not just the three girls who were abducted, but everyone in their orbit, you know, even the most minor character, I tried to give a little bit of context. And, you know, of course, one of the most difficult people to do that for was Bossman, the man who kidnaps and rapes and tortures them. You know, how do you make someone who is completely unsympathetic into a character that people will want to read, will want to invest themselves in. And the answer for me was to not make him completely unsympathetic. In other words, to give him dimension. You know, we don't like him. We, you know, he's a a loser in every way, but he had this history. And perhaps that can explain why he is the way he is. So 
that was really important to me to give everybody so that it wasn't, I don't know, it's boring if you have characters that are all bad or all good. You know, you have to give them dimensions and texture. Well, most people are not all good or all bad in, in reality. Right. I mean, we all have, everybody has a backstory and their parents have a backstory and, you know, inherited right. trauma is such a big topic right. these days. And some of this stuff is just, see, it seeps in before, and colors everything you do going forward. So. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, that to look at trauma, I was also very interested in that to kind of look at the lineage of trauma and how it's passed on and how each generation does something different. You know, it's always different. And, you know, Fern and Gwenny, when they are rescued, they don't have any children. But of course, there's a child who's born in captivity, Catania, and she is veering down a very different path than her mother and her grandmother. So I just really wanted to capture as best as I could the different aspects of their experiences. And it, it may not be as easy as saying, well, this is why she turned out this way, but it just gives the reader a picture and the reader can come to her own conclusions. So what made you write this story? Like, where did this idea come from for you? Well, I had been thinking about writing fairy tales. And I, in fact, the original title of this book was The Last Life of the Three Bears, because I was really interested in revising, updating fairy tales. And I thought about the first fairy tale I, that was on my mind was Goldilocks. And I was thinking about, you know, a girl gets lost in the woods and she comes upon this house. And I was looking at Goldilocks as both kind of a, for lack of a better word, a colonizer. She just goes in and makes herself home, but also someone for whom the consequences were quite surprising and she can even be victimized. So I was thinking about that. And then all of these things were happening in the news. You know, the Ariel Castro story happened and the story that took place in Vienna where the father locked his daughter, in, you know, for 27 years in the basement. And there were just a lot of things happening in the news. And it seemed to me that the story of girls held captive was just going on and on. And on. it was, you know, unfortunately now it's, like, it's sort of like school shootings. You know, you, you, when someone says, oh, did you hear about the school? Which one? You know, it just happened so frequently now. And we just, in some ways, become desensitized. And I really wanted to pluck, when I was thinking about these cases, I really wanted to pluck the, the characters that I created because I did not want to write a true crime story. The people, for example, in the Ariel Castro case, they're still alive. And I did not, you know, it wasn't my place to tell their story. But I was just, when that when that story hit the news, I the, I asked the same question that everyone did. How could people not know? How could they not know? You know, and then I thought about, well, what are the repercussions, you know, for for the society around them? You know, it's not like people just think, oh, okay, they're they're gonna be okay, they'll get some therapy and they'll be okay. That, you know, or this idea that they'll get closure. That's, you know, what is closure? What's closure? You know, closure goes on for the rest of your life. So I was thinking about those news stories, but there was something else that was on my mind. I mean, there were actually a lot of things that there were a lot of sources of kind of grim, grim inspiration for this book. But I'm not normally a viewer of true crime, but I happened to watch a true crime show one day. And it was about this a black woman who was a sex worker who'd been kidnapped by a white man and probably in Ohio, I think it was. And she was telling her story. You know, she obviously had been rescued because she was telling it in retrospect. But 
there was something about her story that just struck me. She had been imprisoned by this man. She managed, along with some other sex workers, they were chained up in the basement. She managed to convince her captor that she was in love with him. And he took her out of the chains and brought her upstairs. And she was fooling him, you know, to try to make a getaway. And she asked him one day if he would take her to a gas station so she could just tell her parents, you know, or, or I think her family, I, I can't remember if it was her parents, that she was safe. And he said, okay, you know, he believed that she loved her. So they went to a gas station. She went to, this was in the day of the days of payphones. Uh, she went to a payphone and there happened to be two cops there. And she went up to them and said, I have been kidnapped. I need to be saved. And they were just laughing. They looked at her and saw a strung out prostitute and they didn't take her seriously. And she had to beg for like 10 minutes. I am being kidnapped. And they were laughing at her. So eventually I think they followed her. You know, they said, okay, okay, you're going to humor her. They follow her to the house. They discover all of these women chained up. The man is arrested. They, in fact, one of the women in the basement had actually died. So that also just stung me. And what was interesting was at the very end of the show, you know, was a really difficult story you could tell for this woman to, to tell and for us to hear. It was so much to process, but in the end, they kind of tacked on this happy ending. So, you know, they, they wrote in text on the screen, she got married, she's happily married and living, you know, and I just thought, again, it's this idea of, okay, Let's not even deal with the complexities of, you know, what it's saying about race and, and gender, sexuality. What, we're not going to even think about that. We're just going to give it a happy ending and be on our way. And that really inspired me to take on the other side of these three girls. Wow. So how do you like do research into this and write about it without feel? I mean, this is dark stuff. This is upsetting and I mean, even like references to what happens with even something as benign as a paperclip. I mean, this like the, the the view of the world becomes so so dark. Really, how did you like preserve your mental health while writing this book? I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If Only in Theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Sometimes we all have stuff we need to get off our chests. Even if we don't think it's interfering with our daily life, there are some things you just haven't processed, be it grief or trauma, eating disorders, anything. It might be time to work on those things, and I have a solution for you. Therapy. Online therapy by BetterHelp. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. 
I took the brief questionnaire online where there were, I don't know, 20 questions. It didn't take long at all, maybe three minutes. And then I got matched with a therapist who could help me work on whatever. I picked trauma because even though it happened in 2001, I am somehow still not over the loss of my friend on 9-11. And it is what it is. BetterHelp is going to help And I am so excited, especially because with my special code, instead of $80 a month, it is 10% off, $72 a month, which is so much less than traditional therapy. And you'll get a perfect therapist for you. There are 35,000 therapists to choose from, so you'll find the right one. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash moms don't have time today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash moms don't have time. It was really hard uh, to say it was or really maybe, hard. Or maybe I should say, did you? Did you preserve your mental health? I don't health? know if I did. I don't know if I preserved my mental health. I will say that I did relatively little research. In fact, I did, did almost no research. I, For me, the research that was important was just figuring out how to inhabit these characters, you know, that it wasn't just for me writing them. It was really seeing the world through their eyes. And it was, it was hard. And there were times that were really hard. And for me, the most difficult character to do that for was Jesenia because she has this, you know, whatever Stockholm syndrome, or, you know, she identifies with her captor and she wants to have a future with him. And she, you know, they're going to have a baby together. And she's so, you know, she's really looking forward to it. And everyone around her knows that that's not going to happen and that that shouldn't happen. But her denial was, I would say for me, fictionally, it was such a, I love the challenge of doing it, of writing a character who really could not see what the reader wanted her to see and had built this fantasy, but it was really tough writing it also because of the abuse she endures and her, you know, unwillingness to kind of connect with reality. So that was really hard to write. I would say with the other characters and also with Desenia, one thing that saved me from completely losing myself in the grimness was humor, you know, and one of my colleagues read my novel and he said, I can't believe how many times you mentioned Judge Judy. (laughs) (laughs) You know, for me, humor is so important to preserve their humanity. It's just really, it's a really important tool. You know, everything can't be serious all the time, even though it is a serious and tragic situation. They have to have some coping mechanisms. And for me, it was really humor. It was kind of building this world that they that they actually cherished, you know, and also building a friendship. That was also a really big part of it for me. So it wasn't, you know, that much about doing research. And I, I'm often asked, you know, did you do a lot of crime research? And I didn't do any. I just imagined what it would be like when you have to really build a new world where your food is not actually food, where you're chained up, where you have to, you know, we're always talking about world building, but in, you know, relation to science fiction or fantasy, but what about people who have to do it all the time? And that actually includes all of us. So we're always, we're all world building, right? But they're a pretty extreme case. Wow. Well, it's definitely, I mean, you did obviously a very successful job and it's emotional. I mean, you know, you feel it when reading it, that emotion and, you know, it's, that's 
a sign of really good fiction, right? When you are inside the characters, interior lives, and you feel even when it's really horrifying stuff. So how did you end up becoming a writer? Well, the original myth behind this is that when I was, and it's actually not a myth, it actually happened when I was six and my sister was five, we had a big argument. Who was going to be the artist in the family? Because of course, you know, I wanted to draw horses and she wanted to draw them and we both could not do it. And so we argued and argued. And my mom came up to both of us and said, okay, stop. Marlene, my sister, you're going to be the artist and Carolyn's going to be the writer. And that really set the path. And my sister is an artist and I'm a writer. And my mom gave me a notebook and I wrote a collection of poems immediately. And I mean, I've always wanted to learn how to draw. (laughs) Writing is my my lot in life. And I always wanted to do it in school, but the public school I went to had no, you know, there was no creative writing. I had to wait, unfortunately, till I got to college. And then I had just amazing writing teachers. And I, you know, I never look back. Wow. How is the process? What was the process like in terms of timing and like actually sitting down? Like, where did you write this book? (laughs) Well, I, I need to be in your anthology because, you know, where do mothers get time to write? You know, it's interesting. There was a review of my book in the times in which Dwight Garner talked about the 25 years that had passed between my first and second books. And, you know, he described it as a time of silence. And when I look back on it, it's like, I, it's a time of kids. I had two kids and noise and birthday parties and, you know, trying to get little bits of time to write here and there. And when they were very young, I had a short story collection that came out. Actually, I was pregnant with my son when it came out. And when they were very young, I, writing was just almost impossible. So I I actually have been publishing in these 25 years, but short stories, that's what I really turned to, short stories. And I, I wrote a few essays, but short stories have always been my thing. I can't believe I actually wrote a novel. <laughs> I, I have been, you know, I, I admire, you know, Alice Monroe, Grace Paley, people who just are like, I'm writing short stories and that's it. And then suddenly this weird novel comes out of me, which I really see as a collection of short stories in some way, you know, everybody has a, it's, it's so fragmented, you know, and it's fragmented for a reason, you know, not just my love of stories, but I really wanted the fragmentation of the that the girls were experiencing, that their lives were, you know, upside down, that everything had been fragmented. I wanted to kind of use that as a narrative strategy for the book that, you know, just kind of break things apart in this way to mirror what they're experiencing, not to completely confuse the readers, but just to kind of get a sense of, you know, how they're experiencing the world. So, yeah. what, What was it like to sell the book? What was that publishing journey like? That was, I, I've had, I've sold two books and each one was a Cinderella story. So my Cinderella story with this book was right before the pandemic, my last outing, before we knew that we would be locked up, I was invited to give a reading in Harlem in this restaurant, in the basement of a restaurant. And it was like Sunday night. I didn't invite anyone. I just thought, you know, who's going to want to come out at a school night? You know, I have to go to Sarah Lawrence in the morning. So my husband came with me. I gave, I was reading with actually a former student, former MFA student at Sarah Lawrence. And so the person who came before me was reading poetry and playing the didgeridoo. So it was one of those kinds (laughs) of, you know, and I was like, okay, this is, this is kind of funky. So I, I read my stuff and 
in the audience was an old friend of mine. We used to be in a book group together and she had been an editor years and years ago and then changed, took a different career path, led the publishing program at City College and did a lot of other things and also had two kids. So she was in the audience because she happened to live around the corner from this venue. And she knows that I am a story writer. And she said, well, do you have a collection of short stories? I'm going to begin work at Holt. I've taken a job as editor at large. And I said, well, I'm almost finished with my story collection, but I do happen to have this novel. And I had just gotten an agent uh, a couple of months before. And I showed her that, you know, we went through the proper channels. My agent sent her the book. And I mean, really, in a matter of like two weeks, I had a contract. And it was really wonderful because Retha, my editor, she wasn't even working for Holt yet. And she, this was her first acquisition for the company. And it just, you know, then we were suddenly locked down. And my task was to revise, you know, to make edits. And, you know, I went through, I guess, what everybody goes through. Okay. There are a few things I have to change. And months later, <laughs> a lot of things that I, you know, had to tighten up. And with a book like this, getting the dates right and making sure that the horror didn't overwhelm the reader. And mm -hmm. so that was my pandemic project. You know, I worked on it through the pandemic. Wow. That is impressive. I mean, it was a dark time. So there you go. It was, a, it was really this silver lining, this, you know, really like Cinderella story, because I didn't think, you know, I was like, this is a really weird book. Who would be interested in reading this totally chopped up book? You know, I think that, and this is based on just what I read. I think that when men ask that question, they don't really ask it, you know, because they'll write something weird and it'll be published and people will, you know, praise it. But I think it's for women, sometimes it's hard, you know, to write something that's so out of the box and just, you know, will people be interested in reading it? You know, it was meant to be right. That's like a meant to be story. This book was coming out yeah, yeah, and it yeah. had, just had to find its way. Uh -huh. Right. How I feel about my daughter half the time, you know, <laughs> she was going to get out into the world one way or another. She just right. found uh -huh. me. So it's like the same thing. <laughs> yes, exactly. So are you working on anything else now as if this isn't enough, this, you know, <laughs> well, I am trying to finish the story collection and I am, believe it or not, I'm working on another novel. And I sat down and I said, okay, this book is not going to be as fragmented and all over the place. And so far I've, I'm about hundred pages in and it's just as fragmented and all <laughs> over the place, but I'm kind of looking at slavery and the Holocaust and trying, you know, and kind of making connections there. So, so another light read. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. I'm just going to have a therapist show up at your doorstep. You're going to be like, who's this? And it, you're like, Oh, right. That talk was Zivi while you. <laughs> Wow. No, kidding aside, is there something that appeals to you about writing through like the worst case scenario of stuff? Like, do you know where that comes from in yourself? Oh, that's a really good question. I guess where it comes from, the sort of thread that I think has been through all of my work is I don't like when people are not heard or seen. And that's like a that's like a thing with me, you know, even though I'm very introverted, I'm not an extrovert by any means, but I'm really talking about people who are silenced and, you know, you can be silenced in, of course, as you know, many ways, not just through overt violence, but I've just, even as a child, I've always thought about, you know, the stories that we don't hear about, you know, I thought about in fairy tales, you know, what about 
you know, what actually happened with that princess? You know, I'll give you a good example. When I was, I think I was five years old, I was watching, no, I was about six or seven. I was watching West Side Story. It was on TV. And one of my sister's friends who was a year younger, we were watching it. And she said at the end, you know, we were all crying at the end. And she said, oh, well, you know, nobody dies, actually. Tony, he didn't die. Maria doesn't die. You know, they, in the other, uh, she said, in the other end, they all actually just live happily ever after. And I thought, well, the whole point, (laughs) there's a murder, you know, it's, I didn't know it was Romeo and Juliet, but that was, you know, it was about how fighting was bad, but that this friend just made up this whole other story about Tony and then even thought about dragging Maria into it. That just intrigued me. I never stopped thinking about that. How could she say, well, nothing actually happened to them? You know, she probably couldn't deal with that, but I was just so intrigued. So I'm, you know, I'm always interested in that other side of the story, but particularly with people who are just not heard or taken seriously or seen or invisible, you know. Wow. Well, good for you for sort of excavating. So that's awesome. Thank you. You're welcome. Last question. Any advice for aspiring authors? Oh my gosh. I just came out of my graduate class and I had a long lecture. Uh, and so I can just give Okay. That- just, the, just one thing. <laughs> No, 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 it won't be a long lecture. <laughs> One thing that I would advise people to do is when they're writing something, to try to write it to its end, as opposed to writing a little bit and then going back and revising and writing a little bit and going mm-hmm. back and revising, but to write something to its end. Of course, that's difficult with novels, but I think there is something about getting a finished draft down and then you know, using the powers of revision to really figure out what you want to do, as opposed to constantly editing editing yourself, that sort of leads to a kind of perfectionism that stymies everybody, myself included. So I may not always practice what I preach, but I think that that's the best advice I could give is to try to write a full draft before revising it. Okay. Well, we we won't hold you to it yourself, but thank you for the advice. (laughs) Well, Carolyn, thank you so much. Thank you for your time and this beautiful book, Dear Miss Metropolitan. And you know what? If choppy is your thing, just own it. That's your style. It's amazing. Why not? You have to do something different, right? Everybody has their thing. So. Right. Right. Thank you so much, Sibby. All right. Well, take care. It's been a pleasure. Okay. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. 
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.